0: Well, we'll set the, the context for our study in this way. Again, here we have Saul recognized as King publicly. Um, none of us, I'm sure, are big fans of waiting. Jack London, who's the, the famous author, as you'll know, he has a great quote about what it takes to be a good writer. And with regard to waiting, he says, "You can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. You can't wait for inspiration, you have to go after it with a club, which is making the point, of course, for writers that if you just sit there and wait for, uh, for that wonderful story to come into your mind, nothing is going to happen. You have to start writing, you have to get after the process. Um, so waiting can be unproductive, but at the same time, waiting is something that uh, so often is outside of our control. Uh, we get used to waiting for all kinds of different things. We could make a list as long as our arm about all the different things uh, that we spend our time waiting for. And and in the flow of events in 1 Samuel, we are right in the middle of a section where waiting has been taking place. So there's waiting tension here. Because back in chapter 8, the people of Israel had asked Samuel for a king like the nations. And we remember that the request bothered the prophet Samuel. and So he took it to the Lord and, and through a series of dialogue and warning and all of these things, ultimately the Lord tells Samuel, uh, to honor their request and, and give them a king like their idolatrous hearts desire. So the people are going to get their king. But then by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, things are left with Samuel simply telling the men of Israel to return to their homes. Go back to your city, he says. So, so the people are going to be given a king, but for the moment they'd simply been sent home and are now waiting. Probably they're wondering what's going on. Samuel didn't give them a timeline. He didn't provide any indication of how this... This whole process of king selection was going to go. All he told them is go back home for now. And that's where things were left publicly with Israel and their requests for a king back at the end of chapter 8. Now, as the reader, uh, we've been given a window into the events of chapter 9 and into the first part of 10 where, where Samuel is directed by uh, God to anoint Uh, kish's boy to anoint saul as king and samuel does do that but we remember we're we're privileged to that just as we read through the narrative Uh, that's not a public situation yet all of that was very private Uh, so far there's been no direct public declaration that saul is the guy Uh, there have been some strange events along the way that made people kind of wonder what was going on remember saul was prophesying and that weirded people out a little bit but 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 even by the end of, of verse 16 of chapter 10 that last section. Uh, Saul keeps this royal anointing a secret even from his uncle when he gets back home. So so if we can put ourselves in the people of Israel's place for a moment, uh, we can see that they've been in this posture of waiting. Samuel's indicated that this this king is going to come, the king of their asking. They're going to get it. Uh, But so far, we don't read about any kind of official public updates on the royal search. Uh, All the people have is Samuel sending them home, and they're in this pattern of waiting now for some period of time, at least for as long as the events of chapter 9 took place, time has gone by. And then we get into this section in chapter 10, where Saul is going to be publicly recognized as king. So all of a sudden, we come into the situation where the waiting is now over, and Saul, the the king of the people's asking, we remember the play on the Hebrew word there for ask, and Saul, they sound the same. Uh, Saul, the king of the people asking, is, is going to be publicly introduced here. And in Saul's public introduction, uh, what we'll discover is not only some, some immediate truth in this passage that speaks to our need for God's continued grace, we can find ourselves in Israel's condition as reflected here, uh, but what we'll also see and, and what we all expect to see at this point as we read our Bibles is that uh, the, uh, the public recognition of, of Israel's first king, Saul... Ultimately, is directing us forward to anticipate uh, the introduction of the climactic King Jesus. And so, as we come under this word, we find both immediate application from the historicity of this passage, and then we also find that ultimately it's compelling us forward uh, to, to look for Christ, which, of course, we expect from our Old Testament. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention on this passage uh, under under three main headings, and I'll just give those to you if it's helpful. Uh, The first one is going to be exposed sin. The second is divine indication. And then the final one will be differing reactions or differing responses. Uh, So that's how we'll take this this passage today. Saul is publicly recognized as king. And and first of all, what we'll do is we'll see how that public recognition comes in the context of exposed sin. Exposed sin. In fact, why don't I just read verse 23 and 24 again uh, so, so we get that part. Um, I'm sorry, not first, well, I've already jumped ahead. The sermon's almost over. Nope, 17, 17 and 18. Uh, Samuel summoned the people to the, to the Lord at Mizpah. Now you remember, just as a side note, when was the last time the people were at Mizpah? The last time was in chapter seven when they were repenting, right? So this is a place where repentance should happen. So so Samuel's bringing them to this place at Mizpah. and he said to the Israelites, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, You must set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And on the text goes. Um, so, so, So like we mentioned, the people of Israel are no doubt waiting in this kind of anticipatory tension. Uh, The people would be getting their king. They know that. And so no doubt when when Samuel calls the people to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah, probably they would have gladly come uh, with some inclination that this could be the day they were waiting for. Uh, The anticipation would have been there and the people would have been excited to hear what Samuel the prophet would say to them. Uh, But Samuel doesn't start things off in a way we might expect. Um, he doesn't start things off by saying it's so great that you're all gathered here today what a joyous event this is here we are about to inaugurate the first king of israel's monarchy this this great people of god we're all glad you're here in fact why don't you turn to your neighbor and give them a big hug and tell them how glad you are that they came out today for this event Um, samuel doesn't begin that way in fact he begins quite the opposite he begins by preaching a very short sermon about the people's persistent sin short sermon about the people's persistent sin no niceties are recorded for for, from the prophet there's no encouraging word no starting uh, with saying something like you know dearly beloved we're gathered here today and 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 something like that no instead samuel gives a two-point sermon about their sin and if you look at the text in effect he says here's what god says to you point one god has done amazing things to save you over and over and over and over again point two you have rejected God who saved you over and over again, now especially in this final uh, demand for a king. Conclusion, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Amen. That's the sermon. That's the sermon. It's short. It's pointed. Um, but, but things are even more punctuated when we, when we, when we think about some of the, the, the grammar here, uh, just in the Hebrew text, that the I and the you in this sermon are in prominent positions. So in the Hebrew language, they'll move things forward in a sentence to kind of put a highlighter on them and say, and say this is where the emphasis lies. And so if we, if we, if we can read it that way, this is a, this is a very accusatory sermon that, 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 uh, that Samuel gives to them. I delivered you, God said. That's highlighted. I delivered you, but you have rejected your God. So I saved, you sinned. That's the sermon. Now, we know this part of the story, and here we are at Mizpah, in the context of, 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 of in the location where repentance has taken place historically. We know what's going on in the people's hearts right now, which has come up multiple times in this in this narrative that the people's request for a king is primarily a rejection of the Lord and his care for them. God, God says that very directly in chapter eight verse eight um, and, and that's what Samuel is reminding them of here uh, before. Saul is going to be ultimately indicated here. Next is the king. But before God reveals the king, he speaks to them through the prophet. He re-exposes their sin in a significant way. However, we find there's ultimately no, no response from the people here. It's just, it's just crickets as they wait for the next phase of whatever's going to be happening. Their, their hearts are not soft toward the Lord uh, and, the, and the sin that they're being called to account here. Instead, uh, we're just going to keep moving through the passage and the people demonstrate the fact they've grown kind of indifferent to the whole thing. Um. And so in thinking about this, we, we just can't miss the fact that the Lord is, is in such a place over the hearts of the people that their sin continues to be very exposed to him and by him. And, and just in what's recorded here, it actually helps us to have a, a proper understanding of sin as we think about how it plays out in the narrative here. So, so think this, this out with me for just a minute. Um, This accusation of sin with regard to their request for a king, it's really one of the most tangly parts of the story. And I know we've talked about this in home group and different things. This is a tangly part of the story because a king for Israel is part of God's plan. The Lord promised Abraham that kings are going to come from his family line. Uh, we know Moses speaks directly about things in, in Deuteronomy 17. In fact, Moses even says, when you ask for a king like the nations, which is exactly what the people have done here, and then he gives them a bunch of directives about that. The sticky point of this narrative is that from the outside, the people's request for a king just doesn't seem so wrong. And yet, the Lord keeps bringing up the sin of idolatry and rejecting him that he sees as present in their heart. So so, what's so wrong about wanting a king? In fact, we can quote chapter and verse from Moses' writing that seems to encourage and expect having a king. We could even go so far as to reciting the, the passage where Moses talked about asking for a king like the nations, exactly like the people do here. The sticky point in all this is that at some level, by all outward appearances, the people's request for a king just doesn't seem that bad. In fact, in fact, They could even use some Bible verses to back up what they're doing. However, what's happening here, which will become a thematic concern the closer we get to King David, what's happening here is we're being shown that ultimately the sinful intentions of hearts can't be hidden from the Lord. Or being shown here is that even though a king might not be so bad, generally speaking, and even though we should expect a king to appear on the scene of Israel's history, in all that, the Lord, what does he do? He knows the hearts. He's looking on the inside of his people. He knows what's going on in the hearts of his people, and he knows it's not what's taking place in their hearts is not something conducive to trusting in him. But instead, it's something that reflects a rejection of him. They're appealing to the Lord to provide a king, not in some righteous context of basing their request on prior promises. We could see that the people gather at Mizpah, repenting over former sins, saying to the Lord, But, O Lord, in your word you've promised that you would give us a king, and we trust that you'll work through the king to bring about your purposes. There's nothing of that referenced at all. Instead, it's a rejection of the Lord that's highlighted, not because we can't find a verse to support what the people are doing, but because Because the Lord, in all his absolute sovereign knowledge, is looking at their hearts and he's saying, I know your heart is far from me. The hearts of the people are in a place of rejecting the Lord and wanting something like the world around them. And whether they could take a page from Moses to back up their external behavior or not, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the Lord knows their hearts. He knows what's going on inside of them. And then so in the case of Israel's request for a king, the Lord knows ultimately this is an idolatry problem. And there is no hiding ambitions of sin from his sight. No matter how many Bible verses we might be able to come up with to back it up, sin is an inside problem. And the Lord knows our hearts no matter what the outside may look like. Which is really exactly what Jesus is going on about in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? When he, when he speaks about things like, like uh, engaging in an overt, obvious sin. Like, for example, murder. Obviously, murder is sinful. We all look around, and if we see a murderer, we see this is a sinful thing. I can't believe that person's done that. But what about the privacy of the bitter anger we harbor? Nobody sees that. Jesus makes it clear, though, that the unrighteous cultivation of anger and the privacy of our hearts is no more hidden from the sight of God than an overt act of violence. G- Jesus speaks to the religious leaders of the day saying these same kind of things, doesn't he? What does he accuse them of? Well, they keep the outside of the cup really clean. It's all looking really good on the outside, but what's going on in the inside is a total disaster. The Lord knows the heart. And as we see here, just before this public recognition of Saul as king, we see all of this is set in the context of the people's exposed sin. God knows. He tells them he knows. He sees these things. That's what what David comes to grips with in Psalm 51, isn't it? When he's repenting from his behavior with Bathsheba, he's turning back to the Lord. And what does he say? He doesn't say, surely, O Lord, you desire good actions as I go about my days on the outside. What does he say? Surely you desire integrity in the inmost parts, in my inner heart. Right? God looks at the heart. And so, and so the way things start off here in Paul's public recognition of king, as king, we, we have this kind of very blunt reminder about how sin exists in our lives. Sin exists in our hearts as known, as seen by God for what it is, no matter the excuses we make. Samuel just calls the people on it again. God said, I saved you. You rejected me. That's what God says. No matter the reasons we have, no matter even the justifications we can attempt to provide, we might even have a few really good Bible verses that make what we're doing sound okay on the outside, but guess what? The Lord knows. He just knows. Now, now that's hardly the final word on the matter. Back in chapter 9, the Lord promised that even though he knows this about his people, he still promised to deliver his people despite their sin. Again, in chapter 12, Samuel's going to bring all this up again in another speech to them, but he's also going to say the Lord's not going to abandon his people despite their sin. Sin is never the final word when God sets his love upon us. But we don't want to confuse that by also saying, my sin isn't seen by God. He knows our heart. And, and it's a little dark, but it's good gospel medicine to sit with that reality now. And again, nothing is hidden from his sight. The Lord sees the desires of our hearts. He sees that we can indulge in things contrary to him. Um, and, 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 and in all of that, we might find that sin is private in one sense. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's never hidden uh, behind motives that are even shiny on the outside before God. Sin, sin might be covered by all human kinds of measures, but, it, but it's never secret from the Lord himself. So so here we have the the public recognition of Saul as king. And it begins in this context of kind of curt, direct, blunt, two-point sermon, exposed sin. God saying, I know you. I know what's going on in your heart. I'm going to keep working, but I know what's going on in your heart. God saved you again and again. You rejected him. And there's a sobering reality that that, that the people are are, are called to sit with. there in that place of repentance, though they're hard-hearted. And so we can just sit with this. I'm sitting with this this week. You're sitting with this now. Is is there secret stuff? This is what I'm asking myself as I ask you. Is there secret stuff that's not secret before the God who gave everything in order to save us? Is there secret stuff that we're coddling just because it's not externally visible? We don't want to justify sin. We don't want to explain it away. Unlike Israel, we don't want to ignore warnings about sin. We want to yield to the Lord in those internal convictions co- that come by the ministry of the Spirit and ask for His forgiving grace and for His renewing grace, recognizing that the one who sees all of that going on on the inside is also the one who provides for the internal cleansing and empowerment we need to live in a way that's renewed. And, and so it's, it's on this sobering note that this process of recognizing Saul as king begins, exposed sin. And then we move from the context of exposed sin in verses 17 to 19, uh, now to see that the king is uh, publicly recognized by divine indication. We'll just put it that way, divine indication in verses 20 to 22, all under this public recognition of Saul uh, heading here. Um, this divine indication of Saul, it actually comes in two different ways if you look at the text uh, first of all we see um, that Saul is is indicated as king by casting of of lots now you can watch these verses it depends on the translation you're reading from in the CSB translation which I'm reading from here it repeats the word selected through throughout these couple verses uh, but the translators are trying to just kind of help us Understand what's happening by giving us language that's more familiar. Really, the Hebrew text reads, the tribe of Benjamin was selected by Lot. And then verse 21, from the tribes of Benjamin, the Matrite clan was selected by Lot. And then from the Matrite clan, Saul, the son of Kish, was selected by Lot. So so with this this casting of lots process, Saul ultimately, it's worked through and Saul is indicated as, as Israel's king in a very public way um the casting of lots is something that shows up a number of times in the old testament It only shows up two times in the new testament um it's hard to to know what the practice was exactly maybe it referred to having certain stones uh put together in a pile one stone is selected and so you throw the stones down and and then the selected stone somehow indicates the decision that needs to be made Uh, it's hard to know exactly whatever it is it's basically the same thing as flipping a coin for us um and, and while that sounds like a matter of chance, it sounds that way, especially as we think about this in the Old Testament, we read that, that God worked through this practice to make his will known in many different instances. So even like in the book of Numbers, we read that this is the process uh, whereby the promised land would be divided up by tribes. The tribes will, will, uh, will cast lots for the portions of land. And then in Proverbs 16, there's this affirmation that the lot is cast into the lap. You remember the proverb, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So, so it's, it's not as if these things are happening by chance, uh, but instead God's sovereignty is being expressed in the decisions that are made. And, and, this, and this might seem a bit removed from us, but, uh, but this is the proverb, Proverbs 16, actually. I took great comfort in that a number of years ago when I was teaching and we had a huge round of layoffs. Um, and, and those layoffs were were made basically by seniority in the school district. And in and, and one of the rounds, it came down to me and one other teacher. And they were looking at things with regard to seniority as closely as, did one of us get hired in the afternoon and one of us get hired in the morning? So then, of course, the afternoon would be the, the new hire. The morning would be the longstanding. So, so they were working through this. In this case, though, unfortunately, we'd both been hired in the morning. So, so what they did is they put our names into a hat. And, and her name came out, and she kept her job, and I lost mine. Though, though in the providence of God, I did end up getting it back before the next year started. But, but, but I tell you, sitting in that room with the hat up in the air and the person fumbling around in there with all the different names, there's great comfort in the providence of God when you're sitting in a situation like that. This is the proverb in my mind, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God's providence incorporates those kinds of things. All that to say, as we see this practice play out in scripture, it isn't viewed as a matter of chance, but as a matter of discerning the Lord's will. Now, whether or not uh, we go out and start making all our decisions based on this kind of practice as Christians today, that's a little bit of a longer discussion. Uh, we can at least say, if you have an important decision to make, it's better to meet a good Christian friend for coffee and prayer before you start flipping coins. We can at least say that. Um, but, but, but here, this practice is used to div- divinely indicate Saul as the one God's chosen as king, a divine indicator here. Um, Which does strike us just as interesting that Samuel would go through this whole process at all. Because Saul's already been indicated divinely to Samuel as king. God has spoken to Samuel directly about all this back in chapter 9, saying Saul's the guy. Um, So much so that the anointing of Saul as king has already happened, just privately. But, But again, this is a different occasion and with a different purpose. And now on this occasion, the Lord is purposed to make it clear very publicly before the tribes of Israel that he's the one who is, in fact, uh, selecting Saul to be their, their king. The, people, the king of the people's asking is not removed from the fact that this is a king of God's divine appointing. Um, and again, indicated by casting lots, that's one way this is, this is shown here. And there's one more divine indication that points to Saul as king, though this other one is a little bit more embarrassing. At least it, it should have been for Saul. Uh, If you look at verse 21, after Saul is selected by Lot, he's nowhere to be found. Uh, There's some phraseology here, if you remember, that puts Saul right there with the donkeys who couldn't be found back in chapter 9. Donkeys can't be found. Now guess who else can't be found? Saul can't be found. So in verse 22, the people ask of the Lord. They ask of the Lord, has the man come here yet? In other words, he was picked by Lot. Now where is he? And the amazing thing is the Lord replies immediately to the people's asking. Now, now, given the surrounding context, the Lord Lord must have, have mediated his word through Samuel. But the Lord replies to this very particular question, which is something just to note the closeness and immediacy with which the Lord attended this event. They asked and he immediately answers them. As an aside, just just thinking about that sermon that Samuel had preached about the people's sin and all of that, and then to have this immediate response from the Lord so quickly and clearly on this matter, it, it seems like the people would be shuddering in fear, wouldn't they? They've just been condemned at this place of repentance, and obviously the nearness of God is a very real thing here. He's responding immediately when they, when they ask him this question, but of course they're not shuddering in fear because sin breeds indifference towards matters of holy justice, doesn't it? So they're they're indifferent, and they've they've moved away from that. So they ask about Saul, and we have a second divine indicator that Saul's the guy. The Lord replies to them, there he is, hidden among the supplies. Found him. The word supplies there is a word regularly used for military supplies. So probably when Samuel called all the people to Mizpah, they came prepared. Because as we'll see, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, is, is headed their direction. He, he's, he's starting a fight. The people know this. There's some tension there. Um, so they probably came with fighting equipment to this assembly. And there's Saul hiding behind a, pow- a pile of, of, of swords and armor or something like that. And the Lord says, look, he's right over there. Now, we can spend a lot of time wondering why Saul hid. Uh, the text doesn't tell us why Saul hid, but we do know Saul from the text. And so, while we could come up with a number of different reasons, uh, maybe why Saul was hiding among the armor, uh, none of them would be very flattering. Uh, Saul's, Saul's over there hiding. But, but we won't go down the speculative path. We'll just know this Saul's hiding. And when the people couldn't find Saul, the Lord said, Look over there. So, the Lord is the one divinely indicating again that Saul's going to be the king. First, casting of lots indicates that. Now, Saul, and now God's a direct word on the matter. There he is. Right there, you can't miss him. Well, you can, but he's hiding. There, go get him, right? And, and, and in this again, we, we can find a critical point of application. Uh, now, as you know, since I don't watch sports, I don't have the vast array of, of sermon illustrations that I might otherwise have. So you're going to have to forgive me another teaching one this morning. And I think I've even shared this one before. They just get recycled, I guess, at this point. But, but I think I've told you before when I was in the ed program, one of the things they told us was that uh, you needed to teach new content by saying the same thing in five to seven different ways. That's, that's what good teachers do, say the same thing in five to seven different ways. And that must be good teaching dev- uh, advice because that's how the scriptures relate truth to us so often. Uh, and we see that again when we think about this whole episode here with Saul. Because here we are in another section of narrative and, and from another angle, on all that's going on in Israel, once again, we have the message here that Saul may be the king of the people's asking. So, so the, the people are in an adulterous place in their hearts. They've rejected the Lord. There's this exposed and present and disregarded sin, even though they're on the, at this place of repentance. Sin is, sin is rampant. But even in their rejection of the Lord, what do we see again? But the Lord has not abandoned them he hasn't abandoned them once again we see that even though the people's plans exclude a robust trust in god who saved them time and time and time again like samuel just said even though the plans of the people seek to exclude the lord the lord himself is actually very near he's very present and he's moving things continually forward according to his sovereign agenda so much so that he can finger saul over in a pile of swords The people are are twisted up in their sin, but the Lord remains active and near. And and we must need to hear that five to seven to a hundred times because that's something the scriptures keep reminding us of. Sinful people rejecting God, gracious God still working His purposes for His people. Sinful people rejecting God, gracious God still working His purposes for His people. Though we may be pursuing sin, Though Though the Lord may be extending even His hand of discipline in our lives as we pursue sin, as is the case here, Saul will not be a wonderful king. The people will endure hardship because uh, because of Saul eventually, but though we may pursue sin even in circumstances that we chase after which which reflect an internal heart condition opposed to the God who saved us and all those things, the God who saves us ultimately doesn't reject us but remains ever present and active. To bring about his purposes for us. It is amazing that here he is uh, with the assembled people. There he is responding to them as they're they're asking. So we can find ourselves struggling in those kinds of sins that we know God sees. Like we talked about earlier. We can find ourselves very aware that no matter how we may have justified things. The Lord knows our hearts. He sees our ambitions of of iniquity. He, He knows and he sees. But he does not leave. He doesn't abandon us. And then here, in the, in the strange process of making Saul's choice as king public, that truth comes through again. The Lord is active for his gracious purposes among his sinful people. And praise God for that. Because I feel my sin. I feel my sin this morning. I'm sure as we think about this, you feel your sin. We feel it corporately as we confess it together. But that sin is not more potent than God's steadfast commitment to his plans of grace. It's just not stronger. And we see that here again. We we move from the the king being publicly recognized in the context of exposed sin to the king being publicly recognized by divine indication. God isn't gone. He's still very present and very active. And we take comfort in that, which is important to remember because that's different than making excuses because of that. And we have to be able to draw that distinction. Sin is never excusable. We don't take comfort in God's persistent kindness in any way that excuses sin in our lives. We know that just from this passage, that people are being called to task for their sin. Chapter 12, Samuel's going to do it again. He's going to call them on their sin again. There's, there is a very dark danger in thinking that God's grace makes sin not matter anymore in my life. That is dangerous. Hebrews has some things to say about that. We don't take comfort in God's persistent kindness in a way that excuses sin. But we take comfort in God's persistent kindness knowing that present sin doesn't have to drive us away from God, but instead he's near to further his purposes of steadfast love, though we find ourselves tangled up again. His nearness doesn't give me permission to sin, but his nearness instead can compel me to return to him through Jesus again and again and again. That's why as we talk about the Christian life, we talk about the Christian life as one of continual repentance. That's why we confess our sin corporately every week. Not because that's enough, but because that is a model then for us to carry out into our weeks, recognizing we need to continually turn, continually return to the Lord with our contrite and soft hearts, recognizing that He's the one who's there near to us to receive us, to forgive us through Christ, and to continue bringing us along in His way. So we see in this, this ultimately this is the God of amazing grace. It's amazing patience that's demonstrated here. on the the part of the lord so with all that we we have saul's public recognition uh first of all in the context of exposed sin and then we have it uh here in the context of divine indication so so he's publicly recognized by divine indication and then just one more thing we'll also see that uh, that as the king uh is publicly recognized there are uh, different reactions to this different responses and we'll just go through these quickly um, they, they, we could very much make a whole sermon out of these three, mainly because it's three, and three is a wonderful sermon number. But, uh, but, but we'll just go through these quickly. The first response there is in verse 23 and 24. Um, in fact, why don't I just read that? I'll read 23 and 24. Uh, they ran and got him from there. <laughs> that must have been embarrassing for Saul. There he is hiding. A bunch of people show up. Hey! They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. It's funny when tall people try to hide he's tall surprised they didn't spot him samuel said to all the people do you see the one the lord has chosen there is no one like him among the entire population and all the people shouted long live the king so so these verses they bring with irony So, so much irony especially just in what samuel says do you see the one the lord has chosen oh to be honest actually samuel we don't we didn't see him he's huge and you'd expect that we would but we didn't see him he was hidden we couldn't find him uh he was he was ducking out on us but yes we see him now and then, and then, and then, Saul's physical appearance is highlighted again here. And never mind that he was acting like a coward, hiding among the fighting equipment. There's more irony for us, isn't it? Isn't there? The one who's supposed to be able to lead the people in battle, he's not adorned uh, with battle, battle garments, but instead he's hiding, he's cowarding uh, there uh, b- behind the armor, whatever whatever that is. Um, but he is taller than everybody, and people like externals. they, they, they like how Saul looks. Verse 23, Samuel highlights that. So what do they cry out? Long live the king. Long live the, Look at this guy. Long live the king. The first response to Saul's public recognition is that of immediate adulation based on external. Saul looks the part. He, he, he looks, he looks uh, kingly in his, in his tall and, and must be broad and handsome stature. He's out there. Which, which uh, we'll, we'll come back later when, when the Lord will have to tell Samuel, uh, remember man looks on the outside, but the Lord... The Lord looks on the heart. So we've got all these things going on here with outside, inside stuff. Saul Saul looks the part on the outside. People exalt him for that. There's a response of immediate adulation. Secondly, Samuel responds with some prophetic clarification. So in verse 25, Samuel runs the people through the rites of kingship, uh, writes things down, sets it it up there for them. Uh, Just a reminder there that Saul is not overall. uh, Probably what Samuel did is go through the Deuteronomy 17 section where Moses lays out um the the directives for the king uh this reminds the king that he is not a law unto himself but he's actually a king under the law of god um so samuel makes that clear uh and then we have one more response that reflects blatant division obvious division here Saul, saul's public rec- recognition brings disharmony uh verse 26 he goes back home with brave men literally he goes home with men of valor or men of renown and we're told those are men whose hearts god had touched The text says Um, so, so men who are reputable and affected by the Lord. They went with Saul and then in verse 27, some wicked men, which actually is the same wording there as was used to describe Eli's worthless sons. So very literally, some sons of worthlessness spoke against Saul in verse 27. How can this guy save us? They didn't bring him a gift and instead we're told they despised him. Interestingly, Saul didn't say anything about that um so so in that we have we have these responses to the king there's this praise for for externals from the people they they laud him he was tall after all we get some prophetic directives that remind us that saul is a man under the under the law of god he's not over the law he's going to be a man under the law of god and then and then there's this division that occurs among the people so we read this and at one level uh the immediate facts are are being reported to us and uh, that's helpful because we know how things went and this initial public recognition of of Israel's first king and we can take lessons from the episode this truth is helpful we find a connection at various points to our own lives of faith even as we as we think through this um, but even as we're working through this section I hope so you probably have that twinge in parts here because as, as working through this we know that this story isn't just here so we can have details about the recognition of Israel's first king What's here isn't just for that, because it's also and climactically directing us toward a consideration of Israel's of Israel's ultimate King, and, the, and this isn't this isn't here to, to leave us just with this recognition of Saul and all this, because it's driving us forward uh, to anticipate Christ. We know that's how we know how that's, that's how the Old Testament works. In fact, in my reading uh, this this week, I came across this quote, which I thought I'd share with you, especially on the heels of some who are in the grow and renew cohort, or we talked about Scripture. Uh, but I came across this quote from Miles Van Pelt, who's a Hebrew professor uh, at, at Reformed Theological Seminary. And, and this, is, this is the statement made. It says, the Bible, uh, we appreciate the Bible as a theologically unified, historically rooted, progressively unfolding, and ultimately Christ-centered testimony to the salvation of God. So, so, so it's just those, those parts as we're reading our Bible that we can continually be thinking about. It's theologically unified, historically rooted, progressively unfolding, ultimately Christ-centered. In other words, the immediate historicity <coughs> excuse me, of biblical events reflects absolute in- inspired historical truth. And we must take that in, but at the same time, that historical truth doesn't hold us Only in its historical time frame. It doesn't lock us in, but instead it presses us forward. The biblical trajectory is to drive us forward in anticipation, ultimately toward Jesus. And that just helps us read our Old Testament. This is historical truth that's meant to edify us here and then push us forward, not leave us time bound in the immediacy of the narrative. And and so what I want to do is just, just notice how this particular narrative about Saul's public recognition helps us recognize Jesus publicly when he comes. Remember, that's what the Old Testament is supposed to do. That's what Jesus holds the leaders accountable for in John 5. The scriptures do what? They testify to me. In other words, you talk about knowing your Bibles. If you really knew your Bible, when I'm standing in front of you, you should see me for who I am. It was going in this direction. And so let's just see how that, how that unpacks here, just with the way this narrative unfolds. And we'll do this briefly, but it's, but it's critical. Well, what, what did we say first of all here in this public recognition? Well, the king is publicly recognized, Israel's first king, publicly recognized in the context of exposed sin. So here Samuel the prophet speaks to the people's sin in our first verses. When Jesus appears on the scene publicly, what, what, when does he appear? Well, he appears in the context of exposed sin. There, it's not Samuel, but it's the final prophet of the Old Covenant, John the Baptist, speaking to the people about their sin on the banks of the Jordan as he's prepared to baptize them. He says things like, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. John the Baptist and Samuel must have gone to the same seminary with their kind and gentle sermons. John preached heavy sermons like Samuel. Jesus appears on the public scene in the context of people's sins being very exposed. And then, of course, in that situation there, we remember how John was calling their people to demonstrate their need uh, for, for, for cleansing, be baptized, all of these things. Jesus comes to be baptized, not because he was sinful, but because he's identifying with us in our lostness. He comes publicly to be baptized and following the event of Jesus's baptism in the context of exposed sin all around. Jesus was then divinely indicated, wasn't he? God himself speaks and says what? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Here God, in our text, God is saying, there he is, indicating Saul, the king who's hiding. In Christ, it's so much more glorious. Here he is, my own son, come to identify with lost humanity. So Jesus' public ministry begins in the context of exposed sin of the people and in the context of divine indication from God himself, this is my son, and then following that event, the gospel records all manner of, of reactions to Jesus, doesn't it? Not unlike what we find here. So, so, so uh, we fast forward from Saul's attraction because of his physical, uh, physical presence, the externals there that the people like. What do we see, especially in Luke's gospel? Well, we have this crowd that's always following Jesus. And why is the crowd following Jesus? The crowd's following Jesus for externals. He'll heal me. He'll deliver me from demons. He'll even give us a couple great lunches. So we're going to follow him for that too. They like the externals. They like the outside. This is one way people respond to Jesus. It's still true today. People respond to Jesus thinking it's somehow going to uh, make them healthy, wealthy, and wise just in and of themselves. It's self-centered ambition at its core. And then then, uh, with with Samuel's address, you remember that prophetic address saying Saul is under the law. That's a glorious revelation in Jesus' ministry when he says things like, remember after walking through the field, I'm actually Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the, was the covenant sign of the Mosaic law. Jesus says, I'm actually Lord of the law. He's better than Saul. He's not under the law. He's Lord of the law. Okay. And then like Saul was divisive, of course, we know Jesus was divisive. Jesus said families would be divided because of me and so on. Some would be with him, but many would reject him and despise him. All of those things. As Saul remains quiet here when he's despised, Jesus will stand before the high priest, quiet before his accusers, all of these kinds of things. And then we could just go on and on, but but with a narrative like this, all the way back in First Samuel, when we see Jesus appear on the scene, what these Old Testament events help to do is prepare us to recognize Jesus for who He is. We, we see these events play out again and again in a more full and realized sense, and ultimately, we have to say to ourselves, like the centurion at the cross, "Surely this must be the Son of God. Jesus is the one who fulfills our royal need." Jesus is the one these stories are ultimately pointing forward to all along because the Saul in the people's lives here, that Saul can't save. He's lost and he has to be found like donkeys. And the Sauls in our lives, they can come up, but they can't save either. We can get excited that maybe we find ourselves filled with enthusiastic hope over that particular political figure or a relational person in our life or, or an institution or, or change situation or better education. All of these are going to make our dreams come true, but hope can never be centralized on those things. Those are just all all over again. Pretty, handsome, maybe maybe even used by God for a season to some degree, but never the final savior that we need. And so. We'll stop there, but we can just check ourselves by this. We can ask, how am I responding? How am I reacting to the climactic recognition of King Jesus? How am I reacting to him? Am I finding myself in a posture of praising him for his sufficiency? Or am I finding myself looking for other things that actually are more akin to rejecting God like the Israelites here than embracing God's ultimate source of hope that we find in Christ? And we can check ourselves by those things. Jesus is the one we need. Let's pray father we're thankful for your word we pray it would be renewing to us we're thankful for jesus uh, who is the ultimate hope that we have we're thankful he's ours we're thankful uh, that apart from you um, there is no salvation but with you total and complete salvation can be found and so we pray father that you would renew us in these things today as we've studied we ask this in Jesus' name amen